This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 6, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. To understand fully those who advocate for less government and sometimes no government, it's helpful to understand the institutions of governments that exist around us without an official government seal of approval. David Friedman, author of the classic Machinery of Freedom and other libertarian works, spoke at the Cato Institute November 29th. It seems to me that in terms of the logic of legal systems, that systems of private norms are an example of one kind of a legal system. The rules enforced by an Amish congregation on its members are an example of a kind of legal system. Uh, neither of those has the option of locking you up or executing you or even fining you, but they have other ways of imposing costs on you with the result that people mostly abide by them. Uh, I mean, the part of what's what I've been doing for the fair while, because I've been teaching the course on legal systems very different now for, I don't know, maybe five or six years, is trying to understand what I can about all of the different or many of the different ways in which human beings achieve the objectives legal systems are supposed to achieve, and that includes uh, modern systems, it includes systems with, where law enforcement is entirely private. It includes quite a lot of systems where the ultimate sanction is government power, but where prosecution is private. So that, for example, as recently as English, England in the 18th century, you had no police and essentially no public prosecutors. So you had criminal law, but it was uh, the, the legal rule was any Englishman could prosecute any crime. And in practice, that meant that it was up to the victim of the crime or his agent to figure out who did it and prosecute them. I've got an article up, on an old published article on my webpage on that particular system. In Athenian law, a couple, what, a thousand, no, about 2,000 years earlier, uh, it was the case that what we would think of as criminal cases were prosecuted by a volunteer prosecutor. In that system, the way it worked was that most such cases, if you convicted the defendant, he paid a fine, and something like a third to half of the fine went to the prosecutor. And that has the obvious danger that you go after somebody who's unpopular and have deep, has deep pockets. And one way in which the Athenians, who were not stupid people, dealt with that was they had very large juries, several hundred people in a jury, and if the prosecutor failed to get at least 20% of the jurors to vote for conviction, the prosecutor was fined, a thousand drachma fine, which works out to be about three years' salary for an ordinary working man. So not a huge amount for a wealthy man, but still a significant punishment for evidence that you were suing somebody who was so obviously innocent you couldn't even persuade 20% of the jury that he was guilty. And one of the odd things, in a way, about human society is they're so much more stable than they ought to be, that if you think about, put it this way, why is it the first thing that Obama does when he gets the White House and both houses of Congress to expropriate the pension of all past Republican presidents? He, he has he's got the votes. He should have the votes. Why should he give money to the enemy? But he doesn't because there is a whole lot of inertia in human social rules. And if he did that, what would happen to him the next time the Republicans won the election? Uh, maybe people even start shooting at each other if, that, if he violates the rules that, that far. So once you have a system set up and functioning and people are used to it, whether it's a governmental system or an anarchist system, uh, people are going to take for granted the way it does things. The, there's a short story by Werner Vinge, who's quite a good science fiction writer, uh, called The Ungoverned. 
And it's a description of an invasion of a society organized by something like my system by an adjacent state. And one of the things that's really neat about it that would not have occurred to me is the way in which both sides in that conflict, each of them takes its institutions for granted and misinterprets the other side's institutions in terms of their institutions. So that, for example, what happens in the invasion is that there is somebody who is close to the invasion path who is what uh, is referred to in the story as an armadillo. And an armadillo is somebody who opted out of the whole system of, 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 of enforcement and arbitration agencies. He didn't like the result of a case he lost a long time ago. And had, doesn't have much to do with his neighbors and spends his resources fortifying his farm. And the anarchist society in this story is rather richer than the state adjacent, so a wealthy farmer can actually build a pretty substantial fortress. And somebody, clever, some, some teenagers cleverly divert the invasion so it goes right over the farm, uh, at which point it runs into basically a fortress and has quite a lot of trouble reducing it. And it turns out at the end that the last ditch defense of this armadillo is a nuclear weapon that he and his family go into a deep shelter and they detonate a nuclear weapon above their farm and take out like a third of the invading army. And the guy in charge of the invading army is talking to somebody from the enforcement agency, sort of bargaining at this point. What kind of slime are you to use nuclear weapons against us? And the guy looks at him and says, what do you mean we? He's not our customer. That the one person takes it for just as their original mistake because we've just walked around the farm. The farm is not part of anybody's defensive perimeter, but they take it for granted that if we run into a fortress, it must be part of the enemy's military. So, so I thought that was, it was that Vinja does quite an interesting job, and that's why there are advantages to novelists doing these things instead of economists, of showing sort of the psychological elements uh, of, of, of what's going on. Where else does that disconnect between uh, where else can that exist? That is between what you're advocating and what people take for granted in uh, institutions that we uh, today. That is, if you look at historical societies, a lot of what we take for granted is not all that common. For example, police. As I say, the English didn't have police until the 19th century, well into the 19th century. Uh, Peel was the guy who invented the London police force. Uh, the the French did, incidentally, so it's an interesting contrast because at the same time, uh, in fact, I've wondered if one of the reasons the English didn't was that the French did, uh, and that they knew anything the French did must be wrong. Uh, but I'm not sure about what counts as, as, as disconnects. Uh, there certainly, there, there's an interesting book by Robert Ellickson called Order Without Law, who is discussing a county in modern-day California where for certain issues the law of California does not run because it's an area with strong norms of neighborly behavior. One of the norms of neighborly behavior is that neighbors don't sue neighbors. And therefore, if what you're doing is legally in the right in terms of California law, but is in violation of our local norms, you can't defend yourself by, by winning a lawsuit, because if you sue me, you already lost in terms of everybody's view of how neighbors behave. And therefore, in effect, for certain issues, not for all issues, it is the norms of neighborly behavior and not the laws of California that determine what happens. That's Alexson's a law professor at Yale who wrote an interesting book on that case. Uh, so that's one example. But an awful lot of what happened is, happens even in our society is really determined by non-governmental uh, factors. How did you become a libertarian? 
Probably depends how you define libertarian. Obviously, I was brought up in a family where my parents had, especially my father, had generally libertarian views. The point at which I became an anarchist, the clearest influence, I think, was a novel by Robert Heinlein, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Because prior to that, I viewed myself as a classical liberal. And I thought that the appropriate functions of government were police courts and defense. Everything else should be private, basically. And it seemed to me that in order for a market to work, you had to have the legal framework being provided outside of the market by someone else. And the Heinlein novel gave a plausible fictional picture of a society where the legal framework was itself endogenous, was itself being provided privately rather than from the outside. And if, the, if it's really impossible to do something, then you can't have even one counterexample. So once he gave a believable, even a fictional counterexample, I started thinking about how in something more like my society, you could produce law outside of government, and that's what machinery of freedom ultimately came out of. What does your consequentialist approach to anarcho-capitalism offer over the deontological rights-based approach? It's a good question. I guess the first thing is that it offers arguments which don't require that people already share your religion, using the term religion broadly. That as far as I can tell, nobody, whether deontological libertarians or communists or anyone else, has a really convincing argument to show that their moral views are right. Many people believe they do, but I don't think that they do. Ayn Rand at least presented an argument uh, Ayn Rand claimed, in effect, to have defeated David Hume's is-ought problem. Hume argued that you couldn't derive an ought from an is. Uh, I have a discussion up on my webpage of the holes in Rand's argument. And as far as I can tell, she simply didn't do it. And I don't think it can be done, as far as I know. So in order to persuade people by a natural rights argument, there has to be some reason why they believe in natural rights to start with, because you don't have any good arguments to show them that they ought to believe it. Whereas my argument, it claims to show, and I hopefully shows, that my system would be better in terms of the values that almost everybody already has. So I'm really saying, if you regard natural rights as really important, well, look, in my system, rights will rarely be violated. If you regard people being happy and healthy and living long lives, look, in my society, people will be, in effect, wealthier than in societies with governments, and therefore you should like the results of those things, and so forth and so on. So I think that I have an argument which does depend on convincing people that economics is relevant to human behavior, but doesn't depend on convincing them of your particular right and wrong beliefs. Now, the further problem with at least the versions of deontological libertarianism that I'm familiar with is that in the form in which people often state them, they lead to conclusions that nobody believes. I spend a chapter in Machinery of Freedom going through that and that, you know, if you really believe that the solution to pollution is to say that nobody's allowed to pollute anybody else's property without their permission, well, you can't really exhale because carbon dioxide is a pollutant and you can be sure that some of the carbon dioxide you exhale will go onto someone else's property. And similarly, you can't turn on a light bulb because your photons will trespass. And once you start trying to make a more sophisticated version of the theory which deals with those, pretty quickly you start running into the kind of arguments that you run into in the consequentialist uh, defense of libertarianism. 
David Friedman is author of The Machinery of Freedom, Future Imperfect, and other writings on libertarian thinking. We spoke following a forum at the Cato Institute held November 29th. You can watch the forum at cato.org.